Lord, as we come to this time in the service where we, we look into your word, we ask that our heart would be the same as our Savior. We just sang those words, not my will, but your will be done. May that attitude, may that heart, may that perspective run through our thinking in these moments as we look into the word. May we not seek to impose our own understanding on your word, but may we be submissive to the truth that comes from your word. Help us, O God, to be pliable and teachable. And help us to see this morning what what you would have us see as we look at justice and as we look at the God who is true and righteous and just and holy. And may your standard of justice permeate our attention, our focus, and our endeavors as we seek to be those who represent faithfully the Holy One, the Just One. God, may we align our hearts to yourself. And may we seek, O God, to be champions for justice and righteousness in the world in which we live. And not to do it our way, but to do it your way. So, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that you would lead us and guide us. May your Holy Spirit have his way in us. May you be pleased with all that is said today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you and I both know that we live in a broken world. We live in a world that is experiencing the devastating consequences of sin. We we saw that. A couple weeks ago, as we were looking at depravity, we saw the the effects of sin and that there is none righteous, no, not one. Sin has left its mark. We could point to any number of statistics, any number of causes, any number of social issues, and it would make us aware of the prominence of the sin problem that we have embedded in culture, embedded in the human heart. We could talk about impoverished children. We could talk about sex trafficking. We could talk about genocide, homelessness, and modern slavery. But let me just direct our attention for for a few moments to the issue of poverty. The statistics would say that 790 million people live in extreme poverty, living on less than $2 a day. Over one billion people would live on $2.50 a day or less. 75% of the world's poor live in rural areas and depend on agriculture for their livelihood. In developing countries, the poor spend about 60 to 80% of their income on food. By contrast, those of us living in America spend less than 10% on food. Nearly one billion people live without electricity. 40 million children worldwide live without adequate shelter, many of them living on the streets. More than 750 million people lack adequate access to clean water. And 270 million children have no access to health services. To compare that to uh, life here in America, if you are a household income of $50,000 or more, you're in the top 18% of the world's richest. Your income is more than five and a half times 
the typical person living in the world. Even if you donate 10% of your income, you're still in the top 19% of wage earners globally. Boost that up to $80,000 a year, that annual household income, and you, will, you are in the top 13% of the world's richest people. More than eight and a half times that of a typical person. There's no question that the world is suffering. There's no question that there are struggles and hardship that, is, that the world is facing from day to day. But the question comes, how do Christians engage such a world? How do Christians provide help and hope in the midst of that kind of turmoil and difficulty? What are we to do? How does the gospel connect to our hearts? And how does the gospel engage the world around us? What does justice look like? This morning, I want to spend some time this week and next to begin talking about what is biblical justice? And how does how do those who advocate for justice engage the world in a way that is representative of what we see in the truths of the Scripture? Suffering is a major theme in the Bible. By the way, from this point on in our series in 1 Peter, we're going to be dealing with suffering. From chapter 2, verse 13, to the end of chapter 5, it's going to be punctuated by suffering. So how do we address suffering in this climate of social justice? I want you to recognize that social justice, however, is different from biblical justice. Now, by the way, when I, when I speak about social justice, I, I'm speaking about those who are secular advocates of social justice, those who would understand it from purely sec, secular means. What they do in identifying justice and how justice will engage the world is they, they begin by looking at the sources of suffering. And by the way, for them, it is more about equity or outcomes, what people have, making sure that everyone has the same stuff and not about equality in terms of measuring ourselves against a similar standard. They identify antagonists. They identify oppressors, and so they seek to come against those systems, those oppressors, in a way to help provide equity, outcomes that are the same for every person. But however, however good this may seem, and however, um, however much they employ biblical terms, I want you to recognize that social justice is not biblical justice. There are a couple of things I want to point out just at the onset of, of this message to help call attention to um, the differences between social justice and biblical justice. I want you to recognize that social justice advocates have a faulty view of suffering. They have a faulty view of suffering. This is important because as we're going to see in 1 Peter, God has an has a overarching view of suffering it is a tool in his hands, not something to oppose. Suffering, though, we'll step into this. Three things, just three observations. We'll fill this out more through our study in 1 Peter. I want you to see that suffering is a result of sin. Suffering is a result of sin. It's a result of sin against you. 
As sinful people come against you, as they oppose you, as they live in a way that is not reflective of the standard of God, and sin is a consequence, or the the consequence of your sin leads to heartache and difficulty and suffering. But I want you also to know that that, that because suffering is a result of sin, there are some graces that are built in. The first grace is that it reminds you that there are consequences to re- rebellion against God. If there were no consequences, then you would continue to, to walk along your sinful life and you wouldn't even give a second thought to God. But, but the fact that there are consequences in the way points you to the brokenness of your life and and to finding solutions that are outside of you. Second is it reminds you that you live in a broken world. And because you live in a broken world, you're not finding your satisfaction here. You are looking for solutions that are outside of, of this place. It calls you to eternity, not to the here and now. And it causes you to look for solutions. Solutions that can only be found in God. Sin has consequences. Suffering is the result. Second is that God is sovereign over your suffering. God is sovereign over your suffering. Psalm 19, verse 75, the psalmist puts it this way. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Notice this. That the just and holy God allows and brings, introduces affliction. It is God who has brought affliction to you. The just, holy, righteous God is the one who sovereignly is bringing suffering and affliction to your door. Suffering comes from a sovereign God. God is sovereign over your suffering. And because he is sovereign over your suffering, I want you to realize that he is not distant and he is not indifferent. Psalm 34, verses 17 to 19. What a special group of verses these are. It says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Just pause there for a moment. God is sovereign over your suffering. God is the one who has brought affliction to your life. And guess who can help deliver you from that affliction? God can. And God delights in doing that. God enjoys when the righteous cry out in the midst of affliction and he shows up to hear and deliver them because God can do that. He has brought affliction. He can deliver you from affliction. And by the way, that deliverance from affliction doesn't always mean that the affliction goes away. It means that God is strengthening you. He's encouraging you. He's comforting you. He's helping you to persevere. He's giving you patience. He's renewing your strength like the eagles. All of these things that God does to help carry you through affliction for the sake and testimony of the gospel of God. Verse 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves such as who are crushed in spirit. You realize that through your suffering, God wants to become sweeter and better and to the, the, the intimacy and fellowship that you experience with him. He wants to, to make better and deeper and fuller than you've ever experienced before. That God is near to the brokenhearted. Are you feeling brokenhearted this morning? Are you feeling crushed 
inside because of adversity that you're experiencing, God wants to show up and be near to you. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. God is not distant or indifferent to your suffering. He is sovereign over your suffering. And then third, God uses suffering to accomplish the greatest things in life. I think I might need to repeat that. (laughs) God uses suffering to accomplish the greatest things in life. You want the greatest things in life? You have to go through the pathway of suffering. It only comes one way. I've got a gigantic list of things I can cover. Let me just draw attention to a few. I want you to recognize that life crisis leads to repentance and salvation. God often uses hard things to lead you to the greatest thing, which points you to eternity, points you to a savior, points you to faith in Christ. Nothing could be better than an eternity with God. And God uses suffering to take you to that place. Romans chapter two, verse four says, do you know, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And that kindness, by the way, includes the good and the bad. The things that lead you to the best things, those are good things. His kindness leads you to him. Lead you to repentance so that you can have the greatest things in God. Suffering also invites us to enjoy the comfort of God. Do you know you can't have comfort unless you're feeling distressed? You can't see this side of God unless you need to enjoy and participate in comfort of God. Notice 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We often say, I want to know God better. Well, if you want to know God better, he is the God of comfort, and the only way for you to experience God as the God of comfort is to experience suffering. And when you do, and the God of comfort shows up in your life, Now you are stepping into something else. You are now have become an agent of comfort to others. God is increasing your ministry to suffering and hurting people as you experience the comforting uh, smile of God on your life, his presence in your life showing up. Suffering also leads to spiritual maturity. James chapter one, verses two to three tell us as much. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Do you realize that you can only have spiritual maturity one way? Do you realize you can only grow in your faith one way? Do you realize that the the pathway to spiritual awakening, the pathway to productivity in the Christian life, pathway to fruitfulness and to growing in your relationship with God happens one way. When you count it all joy and you go through suffering. So your sufferings may be different from the person sitting next to you. 
And some of you are experiencing real heartache, real suffering that's taking place in your life. I, I want you to realize you're not alone. And that God is using hard things in your life to make you not only look more like Jesus, but trust more in Jesus. And, and as you look uh, down the aisle, as you look around this sanctuary, you, you must realize that, that people in this church can only grow spiritually as God takes them through the pathway of suffering. It only happens one way. And when we count it all joy, we come to embrace the sovereignty of God in the midst of our suffering that he is bringing it about for a reason. It's not by mistake. It's by design. As we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1 that, that there are custom-made problems, custom-made trials that, that God is bringing to your life for a reason, to call you to himself. We could talk about discipline of God. We could talk about the presence of God. All of these things, the greatest things that come as a result of suffering in no other way. Your suffering might be different from others, but, but it is suffering that God is introducing to you for a purpose. Nothing is wasted for God. So social justice warriors have a faulty view of suffering. They also, I want you to understand, they have a faulty view of justice. And we're going to spend some time on, on that this morning. It's not about advocacy. It's about understanding what true biblical justice and righteousness means, what it looks like, where we go. And so if their view of suffering is wrong and their view of justice is wrong, then you can Im imagine that their view of how to engage the world with justice is wrong and broken. And that's where we're going to go next week. Because those who love justice, those who love God, will engage the world, and they're going to do it in a way that is consistent with the Scripture, because the Scripture is authoritative and sufficient. We saw that several weeks ago. So let's jump into this study. What is biblical justice? We're going to spend our time this morning in Romans chapter 1. We're going to just be working our way through uh, this chapter as we seek to develop and understand uh, what does biblical justice look like? If you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible, you can find Romans chapter 1 on page 939 in the, the pew ahead of you. What is biblical justice? We're going to begin in verse 16 and 17. Let me read for us. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, perhaps some of you are scratching your heads and saying, I don't see justice there. Where is biblical justice? How are you making a connection? And the reason why we struggle with that is because of all of the the conversations and discussions that are happening in our world about what justice is. That has nothing to do with real justice, by the way. When the Bible talks about justice, it speaks about justice in correlation with righteousness. Well, we'll see throughout the entire Bible that the words are interchangeable. Righteousness and justice are interchangeable. For example, in the New Testament, the word dikaios, which is the word righteous, is translated 81 times in the scripture, used 81 times in the scripture. 41 times it's translated righteous, 
And 33 times it's translated just. In the Old Testament, the word is sadiq. It's 206 times throughout the Old Testament. 162 times it's translated righteous. And 42 times it's translated justice. So when the Bible speaks about justice, it's talking about righteousness. When it talks about righteousness, it means justice. The two go hand in hand. They're interchangeable. Any other understanding of justice is either inadequate or deceptive. We could see in Acts chapter 22, another passage that correlates well with, with the one in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Acts chapter 22, verse 14, Ananias is coming to Paul. This is Paul recounting the story of, of him in Damascus and Ananias coming to him and speaking to him about God's plans for him. It says in verse 14, the God of our fathers has chosen you, this is Ananias speaking to Paul, chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one, or in the ESV, the righteous one, And hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. To put it in common language, Ananias is saying, Paul, I want to make you a proponent of true righteousness, of true justice. Here's how it happens. This is what God has commissioned you for. And to be an advocate for justice, you are an advocate for the gospel. To be an advocate for justice, you are an advocate for the only just and holy one, and that is God. And that's where it begins. Biblical justice begins with God. Biblical justice begins with God. He is the source of justice and righteousness. He has set the standard for justice and righteousness. And those of us who would seek to commend righteousness, would commend justice, and would seek to uh, help this world to live in a just and right way, must recognize that there's only one standard that is above us all, and that is from God. Because biblical justice begins with Him. And that's what we see in, in chapter 1 of Romans, verses 16 and 17. Psalm Chapter 7, verse 11, continues to affirm the fact that God is righteous. God is a righteous judge and a God who who feels indignation every day. His justice, his holiness, his righteousness, all of these things fit into the character of who God is. If you want to understand righteousness and justice, you must understand God. If you want to pursue and advocate for justice, you need to pursue and advocate for God. To speak of justice is to speak of God. Proponents of social justice and critical race theory have jettisoned God. Now, again, I want you to understand, I'm speaking of those who are are embedded in secular culture and who are the originators of this idea. And that's why it's so dangerous for us to to borrow terms across uh, um, philosophies and import them into our systems. We we need to use biblical terms to define what God says about justice. Those who are proponents of social justice and critical race theory have jettisoned God. They would be like those in Romans chapter 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
And as an earthly system that is bent on bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, we recognize it leads to every disorder and vile practice from James chapter 3, and thus it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. It shares nothing in common with the philosophy of justice that we find in the Bible. There's no common ground. And while it adopts biblical terminology, justice, love, compassion, advocacy, it actually promotes autonomy from God. Autonomy is a compound Greek word, auto, which is self, and namas, which is law, self-law, a law to yourself, independent of God. It's subjective. It's dependent upon my own interpretation. It's, it's built into to the systems that I want. That's what the world would promote, a world without God, a world without his standard, his governing standard over the world. But as we move back into Romans chapter 1, I want you to recognize some things about the justice of God, especially in light of the gospel of God. Because the gospel is at its heart the message of the just and righteous God and how we as people who are broken and depraved and sinful can experience righteousness and have fellowship with God. Notice, it says, Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also for the Greek. First, I want you to recognize that we don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed. That what you are going to share with people about the gospel, what you're going to share with people about his standard, about righteousness, about true justice, is going to be countercultural. It's going to stand against conventional views. But I want you to realize that you don't have to defend God. God is quite capable of defending himself. God is quite capable of, of setting a standard and, and then enforcing that standard. We, he doesn't need our help in terms of defending. And when God describes justice, we can take it at face value. We can rest in confidence with the 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 standard that God has said about what true righteousness looks like. And as we move our way into the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that justice is concerned not only in our relationship with God, but justice is concerned in how it spills out and, uh, and affects the relationships with the people around us. God established this standard of righteousness first in the law. And it's going to be polarizing because the world rejects the things of God. They can't understand it, but you don't have to be ashamed. Second, I want you to realize it's good news. This message that we have to give about the justice and righteousness of God, it's good news for them. Notice, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the word euangelion. It's, it's the good news that we have to give. It's coupled with the righteousness of God. As we share the good news with others about what true justice looks like, we're calling attention to God and a relationship they can have through faith in Christ that places the righteousness of Christ on them because of the work of God on their behalf. It is the good news, the euangelion, that God's justice leads to the greatest joys known to man. And God's justice cuts to the very heart of who people are and seeks to draw them 
into the greatest joys they can have. And so any definition of justice that does not agree with the biblical definition of justice becomes another gospel. Third, I want you to realize that this justice message leads to salvation. It leads to salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. God's justice seeks to deal with eternal souls, not with temporal effects, not with the here and now, not with earthly comforts. It seeks to call us to the greatest things, to eternity with him in heaven. It deals with the eternal soul. It has one objective, to point people to true righteousness and true rescue. Fourth, we see it is impartial. It's impartial. Notice, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the only way justice happens. This is the only way those who are naturally opposed to each other can become united. This is the only way to deal with racism and prejudice. This is the only way to have peace among believers and peace among people. Justice comes as people know Jesus. Justice comes as they're filled with the Holy Spirit, as the fruit of the Spirit produces love and joy and peace in their life. It only comes one way. It only comes as people come to know God. Everything else, every other justice, supposed justice, is just a counterfeit. So, biblical justice begins with God. I want you to see as we begin to turn now to verses 17 to 23, biblical justice is, re- is revealed by God. It's revealed by God. Notice in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now jump to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness and uh, ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This word revealed is the word to disclose, to remove a veil, to uncover what was previously hidden. God has not been hidden. God has revealed himself. He has made himself self-accessible and he has done it on two in two different ways. And so if you want to know what justice looks like, if you want to know how justice engages the world, you just look to the way that God has revealed justice in these ways. Look no further. God has revealed it and communicated it. First, he's revealed it through general revelation. And that's how Paul continues this uh, discussion. And by general revelation, what I mean is the, the revelation of God that is available and accessible to everyone on the planet. This is the revelation of God in terms of creation, in terms of the things that you can experience. You can touch them and taste them and, and, and feel them and see them. Notice Romans chapter 1, verse 19. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. 
General revelation is, is available and accessible to everyone who has walked this planet, but it is insufficient to save because every person who sees God is revealed in general revelation is condemned. It says that they are without excuse, but those who do not believe in him are condemned. Something stood in the way. It says that in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now that should sound familiar. We talked about that last week. We talked about there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks for God. They don't understand. And they don't understand because of the futility of their thinking, the hardness of their hearts. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 They're calloused in their understanding. They're darkened in every way. Because although God has revealed himself through creation, and although they were without excuse, the the conclusions they draw are coming from a darkened, depraved, calloused heart. So biblical justice begins with God. And biblical justice um, is revealed by God not only through his general revelation, but also through his special revelation. General revelation is incomplete. Special revelation provides access to truth, helps us to understand who this God really is, who is the one who created the heavens and the earth, who is this glory that's been put on display, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, who is this God and what has he done for me? Special revelation makes that clear. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 says this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God has revealed himself through creation, but specifically, he's revealed himself through the prophets, through his son Jesus, through the apostles, and through the scripture. We come to know who Jesus is. We come to know justice and righteousness as we compare our thinking and see it in the scripture itself. Look to the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. God knew that without the revealed word of God, that we would be those who would just reject him. But he gave himself to us. He gave his spirit to us. He gave his word to us to draw us in to relationship with God so that we can know what true righteousness is, so we can know who God was, and so we could engage the world with that message. The psalmist has come to terms with the sufficiency of the scripture in pointing to the righteousness of God in Psalm 19, verse 9. He says, The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. In Psalm 119, verses 71 and 75, it says, It's good for me that I was afflicted and that I might learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. God's standard comes through his word. His righteousness is communicated to us through the scriptures. We see it 
through his revelation. Then in verse 17, also we're going to see that biblical justice believes in God. It begins with God, it's revealed by God, and it leads to faith in God, believing in God. That's the, that's the, that's the end point for us. That's, that's what the justice of God is, is intended to lead us to. Notice, for in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. It begins with saving faith. As we come to know true righteousness, it leads us to continuing and growing, maturing faith as we come to realize what God has said in his word. We come to anchor our hearts in believing what he has said and aligning ourselves to that standard and experiencing the benefits of what God has promised from the scripture. Faith begins in salvation, grows as we discover more about him. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith begins at salvation, but it's meant to continue. The just will live by faith. That will be the quality of those who call themselves Christians. Those who are following after the righteous one, aligning themselves in obedience to God. They will live by faith, trusting in what God has said. In social justice, however, if there's no God, it's up to me to fix the world. And in social justice, if there's no sovereignty, then it's up to me to fix the world. And in social justice, if there's no savior, then it's up to me to fix the world. That's a hopeless situation. But those who come to believe in God as sovereign, in God as savior, in God who is truly right and good and just, will be able to direct people to believing in Jesus. And that's the end point. That's the goal of justice. Justice is to point people to God and believing that he exists and believing that he is the only way to experience true righteousness and true favor with God. We can have peace with God only one way, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it begins with God, it's revealed by God, it believes in God, it's also accountable to God. I just wanna just move through this last part quickly and draw your attention to some things so you can take it home and study for yourself. Biblical justice is accountable to God. And so as a justice advocate, you need to help people understand there is a standard and there is a judge. And their lives will be measured by that standard and accountable to that righteous one, that just one. If you love people, you will call them to that standard. Notice Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is poured out in several ways through this passage, but, but specifically we're going to see that it's poured out on them on the earth, and we're also going to recognize that it's inevitably or ultimately poured, poured out on them, will be poured out on them in eternity. But as we just look through these verses, I want to draw your attention to the three times where we see this uh, result. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, it says, Therefore, which expresses accountability. Therefore, God gave them up 
Notice verse 26. For this reason, accountability, the standard has been set, the just one is judging. For this reason, God gave them up. And then in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. As we think about the standard that God has set, the accountability that we have to God, I I want you just to recognize that it is good for God to bring discipline on your life. It, It is good for God to chastise you because he only chastens sons and daughters. He only chastens and corrects those people who are part of the family. But for those who are judged by God, the indication of his judgment is actually giving them away turning them loose. That's what he does here three times. God gave them up, verse 24. God gave them up, verse 26. God gave them up, verse 28. We, in America, are a nation under judgment. We, as a nation, are people that God has given up. Because we begin to see, as we read through these verses, we begin to see what's the indication that God has given up this group of people to the the things of their heart. Notice verse 24, God gave them up to what? To uh, To the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We see that playing out all around us. This undermining of the standard, this creating of a whole new ethic that has nothing to do with the biblical ethic, a justice, a righteousness that is not biblical righteousness or justice. And God has given us up our society, our culture, our nation up to hearts that are filling out impurity in every way. Notice in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Another indication of a society that has given way to the things that are in their hearts is this, these unnatural passions. And I would just insert right here that when we think about those who are living in impurity and we're thinking about those who have given themselves over to these kinds of unnatural affections, I want you to realize that there is, as, a, um, as God has made available through righteousness, there is hope that can be found through faith in Jesus Christ. And as those who are advocating for righteousness and justice and pointing people to God and the gospel, we are calling them in to enjoy the benefits of all that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ, in overcoming those kinds of sins. Because I want you to realize that everyone in this room are the Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18 kind of people. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so if God can fix your heart and he can fix my heart and create an affection for Jesus Christ, then God can do that for anyone who is in this category. Notice verse 28 and 29. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. A distorted, depraved, crooked kind of mind. To do what ought not to be done. And then he gives this list from verses 28 to 32 of all the things that that those who God has given up will carry out. It will, the wrath of God will be poured poured out on them on the earth. And finally, the wrath of God will be poured out on them ultimately in heaven. If they don't know Jesus, they don't know the just one, God's wrath will be meted out on them in eternity. Matthew chapter 13, 41 to 43 says this. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The call to justice is a call to faith. A call to justice is a call to God. A call to justice is understanding the standard that God has placed over all of us that, by the way, none of you can meet, and I can't meet. It can only be met by one person, Jesus Christ, who lived and fulfilled true righteousness and paid the price for sin. Romans 6.23. It's uh, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know Jesus this morning? Do you know true righteousness this morning? Have you experienced the there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? And they will be like this group at the very last part of this verse. They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, but only if God is father because they're part of his family through faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you'll be like the rest, thrown into the fiery furnace, The place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of torment, a place of suffering, a place of isolation from God. Do you know Jesus? Justice is meant to lead you to faith. Lord, we thank you that you have been very clear about what justice looks like. You have been very clear that justice is found as we understand the character of God. And you have kindly communicated that standard to us through your son, Jesus Christ, who was the exact representation of God. And who communicated justice and righteousness while he lived on this earth. And we, as those who love and embrace justice, can share the gospel so others can experience the benefits of that justice in their life. Lord, may we be those who love you and know you and advocate for the justice that we find in the scripture. And may the life of Christ be evident through us wherever we go. May you be pleased this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you.